This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Setting the medieval record straight. For centuries, academics taught that the terms medieval and dark ages could be used interchangeably. One meant the other and vice versa. According to these scholars, the world of the Roman Empire was marvelous. As an empire fell, the superstitions of the Catholic Church prevailed. Only with the Renaissance did the lights of scholarship shine once again. This version of history was never true, but it did fit into the humanist mindset. It allows them to pretend that their heroes, the thinkers of the Renaissance and the so-called Enlightenment, brought back humanity from a wretched existence as virtual slaves living in mud huts. In our present age, many scholars are re-examining the medieval world. One of those scholars is the TFP's John Horvat. In the first essay of this episode of the Return to Order Moment, exposing the false feminist narrative about medieval women, he looks at the surprisingly important lives and roles of medieval women. The feminist narrative of history portrays women's rights as a recent phenomenon. Feminists believe that pre-modern women were oppressed by men and had few rights. Nowhere were women more miserable than in medieval times, when the church and a patriarchal society reduced them to near slavery. Feminists contend that since then, the fight for women's rights has made steady and inevitable progress as history evolves to ever greater freedom. We can't go back, they cry. Maybe the feminists need to go back and at least take a look at the facts. Recent studies reveal that this historical perspective is false. Medieval times offered unprecedented opportunities for women. The portrayal of oppressed women is more the invention of modern historians, Victorian distortions, and Hollywood scripts than medieval chronicles. Britain's Guardian newspaper reports on two recent works by scholars, Eleanor Janega and Marion Turner. The authors are feminists. However, they studied the chronicles, not modern journals. They found that women's lives were much better than previously supposed. Contrary to popular myths, the authors contend that medieval women were everywhere in society and the economy. They shared many professions, such as brewers, blacksmiths, poets, merchants, master artisans, apothecaries, and tailors. They could own land and engage in commerce. Many of these activities were denied to most women before and even after the Middle Ages. The authors suggest that modern scholars engage in historical revisionism to make women appear oppressed, often to fit their own narratives or gender studies department agendas. The modern idea of history as an inevitable march evolving toward greater freedom is likewise flawed. If anything, the plight of women has worsened since the Middle Ages. Indeed, the Church elevated the role of women in society. Later, secular movements often oppressed them. History does not follow fate, but depends upon free will. Thus, Periods vary according to the circumstances. 
The most surprising finding of the two scholars is that the Renaissance vastly rolled back the rights of women. The Renaissance was supposedly a rebirth of ancient culture and enlightenment. However, its reborn ideas brought back the neo-pagan Roman and Greek cultures, where women had no political rights and very limited opportunities. The Victorian age also presented a distorted romantic and sentimental idea of women that did not correspond to the reality of their lives. Moreover, the Victorians were obsessed with the Middle Ages and projected their mistaken notions of women upon that historical period. Indeed, the authors consider Victorian women, in many respects, more socially oppressed than their medieval counterparts. The distortions compiled over history have found their way into modern and postmodern medieval portrayals. Medieval storytelling, for example, takes non-historical liberties. One narrative, for instance, had a protagonist that was to be married at the presumably normal age of 14, when the average medieval woman got married between the ages of 22 and 25. George Martin, the author of The Game of Thrones, defended his brutal portrayal of the treatment of women in the series, saying, quote, I wanted my books to be strongly grounded in history and to show what medieval society was like, unquote. Yet there is little evidence to back up this claim. The fantasy genre of literature also creates medieval-like settings portraying women based on distortions. When scholars find evidence disproving these projections and misconceptions, they are often accused of historical revisionism by the revisionists. Feminist scholars and fantasy storytellers insist on portraying women as oppressed despite facts to the contrary. Thus, most people do not have a proper notion of medieval times, since modern ideas are based on a mixture of agendas, distortions, and narratives that make it difficult to have a balanced vision of what really happened. The two feminist authors at least had the honesty to admit the errors around medieval women. However, like most feminists, they are stuck in the Marxist narrative that interprets reality from a class struggle perspective. Their works are filled with the gender jargon and sexually censored emphasis which is unfortunately found in their field. They fail to consider the more spiritual aspects of society that help determine how society was organized and how women were treated. The Church played a major role in recognizing the inherent dignity of men and women and worked toward the salvation of their souls. At the same time, the Church encouraged the improvement of the material conditions of all, opening up new opportunities for progress. Above all, the Church endowed society with supernatural graces, so that men and women became capable of things that took them beyond their human nature. Any other vision will always be distorted because it lacks some aspects of reality, especially the spiritual and supernatural ones. Rather than seek out the truth, 
people will project their errors upon the past to make it fit their agenda. One charge that many humanist scholars level at the medieval period is that it lacks scientific and artistic attainments. Here again, such assumptions are erroneous. In his essay, The Luminous Ages, the medieval use of nanotechnology refutes detractors. Mr. Michael Whitcraft examines one particular discovery that has both scientific and artistic implications. Sometime before committing suicide in 1981, atheist Ruth Hermanence Green said, quote, There was a time when religion ruled the world. It was known as the Dark Ages, unquote. Indeed, she meant that the era dubbed the Dark Ages was when Catholicism ruled the world, for it is undeniable that some sort of religion has dominated every society for most of history. The eponymous darkness refers to a supposed lack of intellectual progress throughout Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire. Detractors of the Middle Ages claim that this dearth of scholarship continued until the Renaissance, when Europe reopened its eyes to the pagan societies of Greece and Rome, and hence became luminous once again. However, is it true that the Middle Ages were dark? And, if so, can that darkness be attributed to the Church? New research on the medieval use of nanotechnology in art suggests that the answer to both these questions is a resounding no. For some time, the art community has known of the medieval use of a substance called swish gold. It consists of an extremely thin foil of gold fused on top of a thicker, yet still very thin, foil of silver. The use of swish gold dates back at least to the early 1200s. To better understand this substance, scientists recently submitted samples of it to a sophisticated process called tychographic tomography that provided the first three-dimensional views of it. The results were astounding. Whereas specialists previously knew that swish gold is thinner than gold leaf, they never realized just how thin it is. The average thickness of the samples tested is 30 nanometers. A nanometer is one billionth of a meter. Gold atoms are around one-third of a nanometer in diameter, meaning that swish gold used in medieval art averaged merely 90 atoms thick. To put this into perspective, a human hair is 80,000 to 100,000 nanometers across, meaning that it is around 3,000 times thicker than the gold layer of the medieval art material. This is a revelation to scientists who never imagined medieval man was capable of producing so sophisticated a substance. What still stumps scientists is, how did artists produce such a delicate substance with only hand tools? And why? No surviving manuscript explains the process of how swish gold was made in the early years of its production. Experts believe that it must have been something of a trade secret that artists hesitated to share. However, there is some evidence showing the methods used later on. Medievalist.net explains, quote, 
The art historian now knows the method used in the 15th century. First, the gold and silver were hammered separately to produce thin foils. Then the two metal foils were worked on together, a complicated procedure that required highly skilled specialists. Unquote. While an understanding of how men produce swish gold provides a glimpse into the sophistication of the Middle Ages technology, understanding why they made it casts light on the character of the medieval soul itself. At first, experts believed that the production of swish gold was purely for monetary reasons, since the application of such a thin layer meant that the artist's gold would stretch much further than if they used other methods like gilding. However, some now believe that the expense of the complex process of making swish gold would have negated any material saving cost benefit. An article on Medievalist.net explains, quote, Since this nanotechnology would have needed more expertise and specialized materials, the cost of their production would probably have been similar to the use of gold. Unquote. This has led specialists to seek other reasons for its use. Undoubtedly, it added detail and sophistication to art, especially when used in tandem with other gilding techniques. Since swish gold is paler and less reflective than gold leaf, it is often found in the folds of garments and to highlight inner layers of hair. Along these lines, some believe that it helped establish a hierarchy of importance when comparing the different elements in a work of art. Medievalist.net said, quote, There was strict hierarchy of materials. Gold leaf was used to make the halo of one figure, for example, while swish gold was used for the robe, unquote. The fact that he would go through such trouble to honor one element in a piece of art over another illustrates medieval man's passion for order, proportion, and hierarchy. Inflamed with a love of justice, he was eager to give everything its proper due. He yearned to make distinctions and order everything with wisdom. This attitude contrasts strongly with modern man, who desires to level things out to the lowest common denominator and mete out an equal measure to all. Medieval man did not espouse this horizontal vision. Rather, he saw things in a vertical manner that ultimately led to God and his glory. Writing in Return to Order, TFP scholar John Horvat discussed this medieval perspective, saying, quote, This vertical vision invites us to elevate our minds with singular purpose to transcendent values and ultimately to God. R. H. Tawney describes this vision as a theory of a hierarchy of values, embracing all human interests and activities in a system of which the apex is religion. Unquote. Indeed, a love of the church centered on our Lord Jesus Christ illuminated the man of the Middle Ages and everything he did. He desired nothing more than to unite himself entirely to the God-man. Mr. Horvat affirmed this, saying, quote, to be like our Lord Jesus Christ was the ideal that inspired the Middle Ages. Medieval man desired to be linked to him in the most complete way possible, 
to lose himself in him, unquote. All this shows the fallacy of Ruth Hermanence Green's contention that Catholicism's rule produced dark ages. Rather, it produced ages that were more luminous than any the world has seen, despite the limitations of the time. This is true, not only because of the tremendous sophistication of what medievals produced with such paltry means, but even more so because during that time, all society was focused on Christ, who is the light of the world. Thus, what so many dubbed the Dark Ages would be more appropriately named the Luminous Ages. Modern society could certainly use a good dose of that luminosity. Another popular misconception about the medieval times was that common people lived in squalor. Their homes, their clothing, and their bodies were filthy. This ever-present dirt led to laziness and vice. Nothing could be further from the truth. Certainly they did not have modern conveniences like running water and bathtubs. However, as Mr. Horvat explains in his essay, people in the Middle Ages loved virtue and therefore practiced cleanliness. They were able to keep themselves and their homes surprisingly clean. One of the most enduring myths about the Middle Ages is that the period was not clean. The conditions of the time supposedly did not allow for personal hygiene and sanitation. Most people assume that cleanliness was, at best, reserved for a privileged few. History does not support this distorted vision. In fact, the Wall Street Journal recently published a story in which author Eleanor Janega admitted in the title, The Middle Ages Were Cleaner Than We Think. Much cleaner, it seems, than even later periods. Obviously, the technology of the time did not permit developments like modern plumbing. However, the framework for clean living was in place. There was a universal desire to be clean at all levels of medieval society. Indeed, the Middle Ages might be considered the initiator of the quest for cleanliness. Like most medieval matters, religion played a great role in securing this civilizing achievement. Dr. Janega claims that medievals took to heart the expression that cleanliness is next to godliness. People associated a clean and ordered body with virtue and purity. Impurity and vice were rightly associated with sinfulness and dirtiness. The most important concern of most individuals was the state of their souls. A person's interior disposition toward virtue naturally manifested itself exteriorly in the form of cleanliness. When this concern became generalized, society tended toward purity and cleanliness. Thus, in almost every field of hygiene and personal presentation, medieval people found ways to be clean. Historians have long documented this fact. Writing in the early 20th century, renowned Belgian historian Godfrey Kurth affirms, quote, It was the Renaissance which permitted the habits of cleanliness of the Middle Ages gradually to fall in disusitude, substituting for them a negligence which degenerated into the most repulsive uncleanliness, unquote. 
The act of bathing was very widespread at every level of medieval society. Author Nicole Valentin notes, quote, People of the Middle Ages bathed more than any other era after them until the 19th century, unquote. The methods of washing varied according to the circumstances. A daily wash of some sort was considered indispensable. People resorted to basins, wood tubs, lakes, and bathhouses for a full bath. Waters were often infused with herbs and rose petals. Herbal baths and streams were described in manuals like the Saxon Leech Book of Bald, written in early 10th century England. Dr. Benega claims, quote, The emphasis on cleanliness led to a great medieval invention. Soap. Unquote. While soap-like substances existed in earlier times as medical cleansers, the Middle Ages developed the art of soap-making for daily hygiene. Soap-makers' guilds appeared in Italy as early as the 6th century and spread throughout Europe. Housewives of even the humblest households had their own well-guarded recipes for making soap. In addition to baths with soap, medieval courtesy books contained guidelines for washing hands, face, and teeth daily. There was a constant concern for all that appeared and smelled fine. People were encouraged to wash their hands, especially before and after meals. As one advanced up the social scale, the cleansing became more elaborate and ceremonial. Hot-scented water was especially favored. Tooth powders were developed to keep teeth clean. Hazelwood twigs served as toothbrushes. Medievals used mouthwashes to keep the mouth fresh and attractive. Finally, it was common to make what today is called a deodorant from hyssop and bay leaves. Aromatic woods, flowers, and herbs were also used to keep clothing clean and fresh. In addition to these practices in society, monasteries observed strict rules about cleanliness. Many had fresh running water and advocated hygiene practices, which later spilled into society. These medieval practices reflected the desire to live a clean and virtuous life. While the systems could have been better technically, they did make much progress in the field. The motivation for cleanliness was the religious desire for perfection that manifested itself in daily life. Cleanliness was not limited to the higher classes as in ancient times. An old proverb states, Cleanliness is the luxury of the poor. Thus, all perceived that they could practice cleanliness according to their circumstances in life. This simple practice gave them dignity. However, like virtue, it would require effort and persistence facilitated by a life of grace. The poor imitated the clean customs of society's natural leaders. The expectation of cleanliness everywhere uplifted all society and gave rise to a wide range of customs, traditions, and products reflected in the attractive folk costumes of those times. Finally, cleanliness was based upon virtue. It reflected the interior of an ordered soul. 
When the Middle Ages entered into decadence, cleanliness also declined. The Middle Ages were clean because the people of that time promoted virtue. There is no better way to explain it. This concludes Setting the Medieval Record Straight. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our programs in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returnorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.